You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special CyberWire extended interview. I'm Dave Bittner. My guest today is Joseph Men. He's a longtime investigative reporter on technology issues, currently working for Reuters in San Francisco. He's the author of several books, the latest of which is titled Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. So I picked The Cult of the Dead Cow because I was looking to write something sort of more positive about the industry um, and give give folks an idea of uh, of what can be accomplished uh, because sometimes you know having covered cybersecurity for 20 years it can be it can be awfully grim the architecture of the internet is against you the sort of software business market is against you um, and geopolitics are against you so uh, I know this because I, I you know I've written about it extensively and um, my previous book uh, fatal system error was about that uh, and in particular I, I singled out the Russian government's alliance with organized criminal hacking gangs but, you know, that was to illustrate the, the broader point of, of how dire the situation was. And th- that came out in 2010. And since then, um, there have been other books that have pointed to one or another aspect of how terrible things are. And I could have done another one of those. But I, instead, I wanted to find uh, something that was hopeful, you know, something that was truthful uh, and important, but would give give a bit of a roadmap uh, of how to how to fight this this terrible thing. And it so happens, this, this group, the Cult of the Dead Cow was perfect for the story because they go back 35 years through the, every iteration of, you know, the internet, um, really, and, and have had just this extraordinary influence well beyond their sort of like blip of fame for a few years, uh, 20 years ago. They've just, they've just done amazing stuff. Well, let's go back to the very beginning then. Um, what are the origins of the group itself? So the Cult of the Dead Cow uh, was born in Lubbock, Texas, in either 1984 or 1986. And it started out in the in the bulletin board era, uh, where people had uh, 300 baud modems, and it in order to connect online, uh, it was a tremendous effort and not very satisfying. <laughs> and so it was um, these guys, the originals, um, were uh, you know young teenagers, uh, 11, 12, 13. You know they'd gotten kicked out of the uh, sort of like the local bulletin board uh, for being like too young and, and ignorant. So they they wanted to be elite. By themselves, so they created um, their own bulletin boards. One of them was Demon Roach Underground. Uh, so that was the home board of uh, a kid who took the name Swamp Rat, which was later more uh, grand, uh, uh named uh, Grandmaster Rat. His real name uh, I put in the book is Kevin Wheeler, um, and you know he was a misfit. Most of these kids are misfits. Uh, they're smart, but they didn't you know, fit in with the culture in, in, in Texas, and they, they were really desperate to communicate with each other. So they had these Bolton boards, and back back then, frequently only one person could connect at a time. Right, right. 
And so it, it was really it was really tedious. So yeah, so by ne by necessity, the early folks are, are early tech adopters because they're the ones would have would have put up with it. And so the actual name itself, is there any record of how it was coined? Sure, sure. So there was a a, a creepy uh, abandoned slaughterhouse in Lubbock, and so the, that's where the the idea of the dead cow came from. And you know, we're talking about teenage boys here, and <laughs> they wanted to be edgy, or nobody would show up. So there was like there was another board called KGB, and you know, <laughs> it, it, it was just part of the shtick. Um, and you know, they wanted to um, they wanted to seem a little a little edgy or nobody would pay attention. Uh, so they start, I guess they, they build this sort of virtual clubhouse for themselves and their, their other you know, group of friends that they gather together here. Um, so how then does it evolve to uh, sort of common activities and, and uh, you know, th efforts that they're making as a group? Right. So there are a number of, of key sort of transi transitions. In the beginning, what brings them together, these the, this group of, you know, uh, independent bulletin board operators, were the Cult of the Dead Cow text files. Um, so text files are just essays. They could be fiction. They could be nonfiction. They could be about, hey, in the, in the case of the CDC, some of them were about hacking and some of them were just, you know, funny. So it was sort of like underground paper, like underground newspaper, high school underground newspaper type stuff. Some of them were political. They're frequently funny, and sometimes they're obscene. They distributed them, you know, to other bulletin boards, and there were a lot of like important, like sort of marketing decisions that the group made. And one of them was to number these text files. Other bulletin boards would want to have on hand like CDC, you know, numbers one through ten or so forth. You know, they didn't. They wanted a complete set. And so, um, while other many other bulletin boards did text files. The CDC ones got spread pretty widely and, and got, you know, famous for that era of the Internet. Another really big transition happened because one of the early members was a kid named Jesse Dryden, um, whose handle was obscene. And so I won't mention it here. Um, mm. But the first part of it was drunk. Um, and Jesse Dryden founded one of the earliest uh, hacking conferences called uh, it came to be known as HoHoCon beginning in 1990. It was over Christmas break and it was originally called XmasCon. And it has the claim to be the first modern hacker con in that it invited cops in the press. Previously, cops had showed up to hacking conferences undercover and tried to build cases against uh, and or arrest uh, the other folks there. This is sort of like a, a turning point where it got to be more open. And HoHoCon brought together not just other sort of like, you know, kids who are interested in this stuff, but really much more technologically advanced hackers including a troop from Boston in the early 90s who would be or already were in the loft, which is this iconic first sort of shared hacker space um, and had had some of the leading, you know, leading technical minds of, of that generation. And so as the group grows, are, are they putting any sorts of guardrails on themselves? It, when, I'm thinking of um, you know, dealing with things that might be illegal. Uh, you know, I remember back in the those BBS days, uh, you know, phone freaking was a popular thing because you, you had to deal with things like long distance charges. Was there tolerance of that sort of thing, or did they did they self police themselves? How did it work? So this is this is very interesting, and I go into this in quite a, a, a quite a lot of detail in the book. In the beginning, everybody was stealing long distance service because if the bulletin board wasn't in your area code, then you had to pay long distance fees or your parents had to pay long distance fees in right. order to connect. And you know, these, you, you're going to be online for a while, particularly if you're trying to download anything, a uh, program, a game, 
uh, anything like that, you're going to be connected for a long time, much, much longer than you would be to just chat to your cousin or some friend on the other right. side of town. So um, these kids were all looking at multi-hundred dollar phone bills, and the parents would cut them off after one month of that. So they basically all scrambled to get calling card codes, credit card numbers, or other ways, uh, illicit ways to connect online. And so this book made some news um, in part you know, a few months ago because I revealed that Beto O'Rourke, uh, who had just declared for president, had been a member of CDC back in the day. And yes, he admitted to stealing long distance service. So he was, mm -hmm. we now have the first actual hacker running for the United <laughs> States uh, president, which is still kind of mind blowing, even though I've known about it for a while, it still blows my mind. But so there was kind of this moral forge that happened where everybody had to consider, you know, what was okay about breaking the law and was it better? Was it okay morally some for some reason to steal from uh, AT&T because they're, you know, they did, you know, you did disapprove to them politically or they're a monopoly or, or whatever. And people, you know, it's it's hard to justify as as, a, as an adult, but um, you know, when you're 13 and you really, really want to connect, you're willing to cut some corners. But what's right. interesting to me is that people drew their own moral lines. There was this why there was a wide variety. Some of the people in CDC did many more things that were considered criminal, but it was never a focal point of the group. And it was for some others, like Legion of Doom, Masters of Deception, quite famously. I mean, they were breaking into all kinds of stuff and and you know, hacking each other in pretty serious ways, um, you know, which led to a lot of them being arrested. And that was never what CDC was about. But I think one of the most interesting things is that these guys who sort of grew up with, you know, figuring out, knowing exactly where the law was and deciding in, in some cases where to cross that line actually makes them more reflective about what is appropriate and what isn't than the clean cut kids that are just coming into cybersecurity today they went to a, like a nice college and they went for a big company and just start doing cybersecurity things those people can be kind of sleepwalked into doing things that they might later think is a bad idea um hmm. there's a scene in the book where mudge one of the most famous members of of cdc is at darpa uh the folks that brought you the internet and for a while there uh, he was running their cybersecurity grant-making program. And people, because he was a serious, very serious, talented hacker and author of Hacking Tools, people in the intelligence agencies were asking him, like, hey, can't we just go do this? And, and Mudge would say, well, you, you could, sure. And that's illegal. And even to talk about it is, is illegal. Uh, and it's also wrong. So don't do that. So because the intelligence guys were always under the, or very far removed from scrutiny, they had the same issue as some some young corporate type. Um, you know, they're layer lawyers, and they don't have to worry about the stuff. They just, you know, think of stuff they can do. They don't have to be sort of like the one-man band, thinking about the legal aspects and the moral aspects that the old-school hackers were. Yeah, is someone going to be come knocking on my door, or, or even worse, on my parents' door? Or hacking the heck out of you in revenge. Right. I mean, there are lots of... I mean, it was, it was much harder. Um, a lot of these guys, you know, had to fend off rival hacking groups and stuff like that. But it was, um, you know, it's in part because the Internet was new and it wasn't as compartmentalized as it is now. I mean, there are people who specialize just in hardware hacking who don't know much about software. And, and there are people who specialize in one, you know, just operating systems and don't know about other stuff. So, I mean, it's that's there's also something lost there. These guys, a lot of them were really generalists and were really curious about other parts of the security setup. And, you know, one of the things I admire about CDC is that they went beyond the technical stuff and sort of approached the media and, and politics with that same sort of critical hacker mindset. 
uh, way, you know, we need to make things better uh, writ large. And maybe we don't know anything about how Congress works, but we'll figure it out if we have to. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. What was the hierarchy within the group itself? Was there was there leadership? Were there folks who were clearly in charge? Uh, yes. So um, Grandmaster Rat, who started the group, had two people he considers uh, co-founders, uh, but they both disappeared within a, the first few years. So it's really been Kevin's show the entire time since the since the mid '80s, at least since the late '80s. Um, but he's interesting. So he has this amazing. Um, sort of stage presence. And, you know, he describes himself as like a hype man. Most people got to, many people got to hear about CDC in the late 90s when they're sort of at their height of fame. And for two successive years at DEF CON, they put out these Trojans that allowed script kiddies to break into any Windows box. And they did it for a completely justifiable reason, which was to force the monopoly Microsoft to actually take security more seriously. Because regular criminals could already break into all these machines. Um, and Microsoft wasn't doing anything about it. So they wanted to make a, a spectacle uh, and, and embarrass Microsoft and the media into taking security more seriously. Hmm. But the guy, Kevin Wheeler, was the one that was pacing the stage with a cowboy hat and chaps and doing a call and response for the crowd and like sort of playing hacker villain for the cameras. Um, so it's always been his show, but he is actually in person um, something of a recluse. He lives in New York now. He never talks about this stuff. It was very hard to get him to talk to me. He's not sort of running it day to day. I would say there are, there are a few people who joined in the early '90s who are the sort of the, the sort of the cultural leaders of the group. I, you know, there's a, there are some that are more active than others. The whole over the whole life of the group, there've been maybe 50 members, but there are only around 20 that are active at any one time. People go in and out, but I, you know, among the people who are the biggest sort of these sort of cultural leaders. Uh, are Luke Benfi, who uh, has the name Death Vegetable or Death Veggie, and Omega, um, whose real name is Misha Kubeka. He was the uh, the text file editor for many years, um, and uh, so all the CDC text files went through him. And Death Veggie, I think he took the title Minister of Propaganda. So he was the one that sort of took the lead in dealing with the media. Yeah, and I, I have to wonder, I mean, it strikes me that as a group like this that starts out with a bunch of people who are 
uh, teenagers and and you know young adults um, that it can survive this long, that it can survive that initial group going into adulthood and having to face all the things that all of us do as we become adults with bills to pay and families and, and so on and so forth, that it's been able to survive those changes, I, I think is quite remarkable. It's not only remarkable, it's unique. There, there is no other U.S. acting group that has had anything like that kind of a career. And, and again, they sort of, it's funny, depending on somebody's age and when they came into the scene, you know, some people will say, oh yeah, CDC, you know, when I first got online, those were the first text files I saw. Uh, and other people that came in a little later, it's like, oh yeah, I was just starting to hack. And uh, the first tool I used was Back Orifice, which was one of, one of those publicly released uh, anti-Windows tools. Um, and then other people who say, oh yeah, the first thing I heard about them was I was into politics and I heard about this thing called hacktivism, which is something that the CDC invented. So all these successive phases of, of security work um, or sort of internet culture, the CDC was in the forefront. Um, and they just, they just kept making those transitions. So after the year sort of 2000, 2001, you know, and they've been in the spotlight for years, then they, you know, most of them at that point are running businesses or out of security or they're into something else. And so the spotlight moves off them, but they keep doing these amazing things. So Mudge goes into the government uh, where he creates the cyber fast track and gives small amounts of DOD money to promising individual hackers like Charlie Miller, which had never been done before. Um, some of them form at stake this, this seminal sort of hacker boutique that sends people inside Microsoft and all these other big companies and really helps the help show them like where they're doing security wrong. And then the sort of like that, the hacktivism activist wing led by uh, a guy who was using the name Oxblood Ruffin, his real name is Laird Brown, inspires major developments in Tor, the privacy tool since endorsed by Edward Snowden, aids in the, the, the sort of the thinking around this, the creation of the citizen lab which today is still the world leader in tracking how governments are using technology against um, their own citizens. So it's just, it, it's this amazing run against what still seems like an impossible field to make a real difference in. They kept doing it and they did it in multiple ways. Has there ever been uh, much diversity in the group or were there any women, any, any uh, minorities that were members? Not as much as the group itself would like. Um, there's one email, um, Kevin sent to the group that said, you know, why are we 95% white males? It, that was a, a problem in the industry as a whole, and it was a problem in CDC. Um, and there are some people that they definitely should have invited in that they did not. But they did invite in Lady Carolyn, whose real name is Carrie Campbell, um, and that was at the behest of Beta O'Rourke uh, way back when they were just bulletin board kids. Um, so that made the CDC one of the very few hacking groups to um, that old to have a, a full member who is a woman. And I think, it, you know, I think that's pretty interesting that, you know, Better Work from Texas, you know, did that instead of just keeping it a, a, a guy's club. There was one hacker of, um, of Indian descent. Mm. And then um, I guess in a sense, you could say that uh, one of their members, Crass Cat, was uh, uh, pansexual and multiracial, but that's only because Crasscat is fictional. Um, when they were really embarrassed about uh, some hack or some file, instead of using their real handles, they would just attribute it to Crasscat. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Now, the subtitle of the book is How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World. 
Uh, tell me about that. Why? What's uh, what's your notion here that they could be uh, the group to to save the world? Well, they've already done, as I you know, outlined, some pretty amazing things, right? Uh, so there's at stake, which um, included people like Alex Stamos, uh, who went inside and became chief security officer at Yahoo, which he left on principle after a secret court order asked for um, Yahoo to turn over, to search all of its users' emails for something. And then he went inside Facebook as chief security officer and blew the whistle on Russian election interference. So I think historically a very important move. Uh, also from at stake, uh, we get Windows Snyder, who was the driving force between Windows XP Service Pack 2 at Microsoft, which was a great leap forward in Microsoft security. And then uh, there's Katie Masuris, um, who is sort of known, I guess, as the, like a godmother of the bug bounty movement. She got Microsoft to pay its first bug bounties, got the Pentagon um, to pay uh, hackers who were also working within a, you know, a friendly framework. And then uh, there's Veracode. So Chris Rue, the same guy who wrote Back Orifice 2000, uh, the 99 sequel to Back Orifice, founded Veracode with another member of the loft, uh, Chris Isopel. And Veracode was the allowed big software buyers to see what the binaries in the code that they'd paid for were actually doing, as opposed to just looking at what the source code thought they should be doing. Uh, and that really was another way to tip the scales away from the software oligopolies uh, and monopolies to the customers who have been generally left in the dark uh, and with very little recourse. So there are those things. There's the entire hacktivist movement, which continues to this day in various flavors. But I think really more than anything, it's the idea of critical thinking that hackers as sort of outsiders and critical thinkers have tremendous value for society something that Better Work uh, has cited in, in his interviews with me, and this sort of sense of moral purpose. And I think big tech is in a lot of trouble right now, not just security, but big tech is in a lot of trouble right now because it's lost touch with those roots, with the sense of, of technology being something that is supposed to make people's lives better. It's been about you know improvements in technology and about profit, and it hasn't really been about helping people. And that's become sort of more and more clear in the past few years, as Facebook has become a playground for organized disinformation, as you know, all the other tech companies are either helping the Pentagon with artificial intelligence or facial surveillance for the cops or making deals with China. There are all these major moral calls that have upset the workforce inside these companies. And you have sort of this un un unprecedented rank and file activism now. And I think a lot of that is because the people running these companies were not didn't go through this sort of moral forge that the old school hackers did. They're making some bad calls here. And so I think the way these guys saved the world, in theory, is that the rank and file and the leaders of these companies sort of revisit the importance uh, of ethics and what they do. And there are a lot of other things that can happen as well. Engineering schools these days require typically a philosophy course. But that can mean that, you know, an EE student takes a course in Plato. What should happen is that they should require case studies the way that business schools do. And so you learn from, for example, the Challenger disaster, where they interview everyone afterwards. And they say, well, the engineer said, well, I felt this pressure to act like a manager instead of an engineer. And that's why I let this launch go forward, even though I knew it was probably going to end in disaster or had a good chance of ending in disaster. So the, the engineering schools can do things better. 
and the the professional associations, um, IEEE, ACM, all these groups can have more elaborate ethical codes. They can have sort of continuing education requirements. And there needs to be sort of like a pro bono tradition like there is in law and medicine. All that is really doable. Um, and I think really necessary if tech is going to pull itself out of the mess it's in right now. Well, the book is The Cult of the Dead Cow. Joseph Men. thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.